name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Heavenly King, Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, you are everywhere present and fill all things. Treasury of blessings and giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity and of your goodness, save our souls. It's the prayer of the Holy Spirit, the prayer that we begin all of our prayers with. Every time we come together as people, two or three gathered in the name of Christ, we in the Christian church start our prayers, at least for most of the year. We start our prayer by invoking and calling upon the Holy Spirit. Every time we use the phrase or name of God, we include the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it is at this time, this keron, this specific, this perfect time, that God gives to us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is revealed as sharing the work of creation, and therefore is omnipotent, as we see in Genesis 1-2, Job 26-13, and 33-4, and Psalms 104 and 30. Is everywhere present, is omnipresent, as in Psalm 139. Enlightens the world, as we see in Job. Enables us to receive and utter divine revelations, as we see in Numbers and 2 Samuel. And generally as empowering the servants of God, as we see in the Psalm 51, in Joel 2, in Micah 3, Zechariah 4. We're all hearing the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. He acts in free sovereignty, coming upon people and even upon a dumb beast as he wants in Numbers 22. The indwelling of every believer by the Holy Spirit is a New Testament blessing, consequent upon the death and resurrection of Christ, as we see in John 7, in John 16, in Acts 2.33 that we've just heard, in Galatians 3. During his earthly life, Christ taught his disciples in Luke 11, 13, that they might receive the Holy Spirit through the prayer to our Father. On the evening of his resurrection, he came to his disciples in the upper room and breathed on them, saying, receive the Holy Spirit, as we heard in John 20, but instructed them to wait until the beginning of their ministry, till the Spirit shall come upon them, in Luke 24, 49, and Acts 1, 8. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came upon the whole body of believers. After Pentecost, so as long as the Gospel was preached to Jews only, the Spirit was imparted to such that believed on, in him by the laying on of hands, in Acts 8 and 9. Peter opened the door of the kingdom to the Gentiles in Acts 10, when the first ecumenical council of Jerusalem was made. When he opened the door to the Gentiles in Acts 10, the Holy Spirit, without delay or other condition of faith, was given to those who believed in Acts 10, 44, 11, 5, 15 to 18. This is the permanent fact for the entire church age. Every believer is born of the Spirit, John 3 and 1 John 5. Every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, whose presence made the believer's body a temple, 1 Corinthians 6, Romans 8, 1 John 2, and Galatians 4. And everyone is baptised by the Spirit, in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 John 20, thus sealing him for God, as we see 
in Ephesians 1.13 and Ephesians 4.30. These are actually the notes of uh, the Reverend Schofield, Doctor of Divinity. There's a little cross in this book that I'm reading from that just says non-Orthodox. But there's nothing non-Orthodox about what has been said here. The Holy Spirit fills all things. It is the giving of the church, the start of time almost. Those who have know of you who know the church calendar know that every Sunday after today is known as a number Sunday after Pentecost. And they go on and on and on to I think 26 Sundays after Pentecost before we start bumping into Christmas and other fixed feasts. So we are now back into ordinary time, into normal time. From Pascha through to Pentecost, we have been in abnormal, supernatural time. We have been waiting for the presence of the Holy Spirit to be given to us so that we return to earth as church. I draw your attention to the icon of Pentecost. And also, right behind you, a very extraordinary fresco of Mother Joanna Reitlinger, which is almost Pentecost, but not quite. I'll come back to that in a moment. In the icon of Pentecost, the church is gathered, 12 disciples. Not Judas Iscariot, but Paul, who's not yet in history, not yet a disciple, but in Charon, in the perfect time, he is numbered amongst the apostles. So St. Paul appears with the rest of the church, arrayed in a semicircle, sitting, still, and orderly. If you have sharp memories and minds, cast yourself back to the disarray of the icon of the Ascension. The disciples are all over the place. They're shocked and they're awed by the ascent of Christ. But in the icon of Pentecost, they have come together in order. They are at peace. They are able to act as church. In the centre is an empty chair. That, of course, is the chair of Christ Jesus. And the same, too, in our church, in the apse, if our, uh, the end of our church was a semicircular shape, you will also see there's a bishop's chair, the chair, the throne of Christ. Only the bishop sits on that chair when he comes to visit our church. The priests are arrayed to the left and right of the bishop as the church. So if you go to a large church that has an apsoidal uh, church structure, in other words a semicircular structure at the east end of the church, beyond, beyond the holy table, you will see the priests and the bishops raid and sat still, listening to the uh, epistle particularly. And that is mirrored in the icon of Pentecost as church. In the icon or the fresco of Johanna Reitlinger, we see the same sort of idea. It's not Pentecost because there are palm leaves there, but nevertheless, the dove of the Holy Spirit is above and therefore representing somehow the presence of the Mother of God of the sign, the Notre Dame du Seigneur, in the centre. So the Mother of God has her hands upright like this in the orans, in the prayerful position. It's a well-known icon known as the Mother of God of the Sign. But surrounding her are the twelve disciples. 
mirroring the icon of Pentecost. In the rest of the icon of Pentecost, I want to draw your attention to the strange little man at the bottom of the icon, often holding uh, a veil or holding a scripture. He is Cosmos. He is known. He is the king that represents creation, us. And surrounding him is a dark space. And then above and around him is arrayed the disciples with Christ or the absent presence of Christ in the centre. This was an important icon for me as I began to learn about Orthodox Christianity because when I was growing up, the preaching that I received was that there was the church and it was enlightened. And outside the church was a great demonic battle going on. And the remnant of the church, the little bit of the church left over, was fighting this extraordinary battle against the enormous powers of evil and darkness. And yet when I found this icon of Pentecost, my whole understanding was flipped upside down. Because this icon of Pentecost teaches us the true state of evil. Look carefully at that icon, because it's only a small part of dark. The rest of it is gold and beautiful. There's only one small bit of darkness. And that small bit of darkness contained by light appears in two other icons at least. I wonder whether anyone can know which ones they are. If you can't remember, they are the Feast of the Nativity of Christ, and he is born into a cave, and that cave is also dark. The other one has just slipped my memory. Someone's going to remind me. It's Christ the Resurrection where Christ is standing out of the, the graves, and at the bottom centre of the icon is this dark space. Why do I mention this? Because our cosmology, excuse the pun, of cosmos, our cosmology, our understanding of us as Christians, even our demonology, our understanding of evil and of demons, must be informed by this icon must be informed by the idea that all that is evil is already contained. Is already The victory has already been given us. That what we have, what is real, is the victory of Christ. The victory of the Holy Spirit. That all of God's creation is light, except for the remnant. Not that we are the remnant that have the light, but all of God's creation has received the light of the Holy Spirit. And all that's left is a few evil people fighting a battle that they don't know has already been lost. In the knowledge and in the joy and in hope of that, we as Christians are not in battle minority that are fighting against a great and evil dark world. We are priests. Some are priests of the Holy Temple. But all of us are priests of God's creation. As we go out into the light from our church, we are church. We remain church. We take church and make all of God's creation church. Every time we remember God and bless something in the name of of the Father, 
and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Whether it's something as simple as a cup of tea. I almost said a cup of water, but we're in England. This is a <laughs> cup of tea. Absolutely. Or to a bless an animal. Or to bless a vehicle. To bless our journey. To bless our getting up and our going to sleep. To begin our working day. And to finish our working day. Such that everything that we do becomes holy. Not just the bit on Sunday when we turn up to church and we do a bit of holy stuff, say a few extra words that we don't usually use, say, use anywhere else in the rest of our life, and then go back to our normal life. To be a Christian is to be a priest of God's creation, <coughs> rendering everything that we see, everything we hear, everything we smell, everything that we touch, God's kingdom, by blessing it by seeing God's joy and love in it. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gifted to us allows us first by the laying on of hands as the Church of Jerusalem experienced the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands and the breathing of the Holy Spirit from apostle to apostle, from apostle to disciple, from apostle to elder to bishop and to priest. And then Peter, inspired, literally inspired, filled with the Holy Spirit, sees that God and remind, is reminded that Jesus commanded him to go and take the gospel, the good news, to all of God's people, not just the Jews, declares and confirms that it is good in the sight of the Holy Spirit that all people should receive the good news, all, including the Gentiles. In other words, you and I. If it hadn't been for that crucial Council of Jerusalem, the first ecumenical council, that said the Holy Spirit is not just for the Jews, the Messiah is not just for the Jews, the God, Yahweh, is not just for the Jews, but for all peoples. If that not had not happened, None of us, almost, none of us would be standing here today. God the Incarnate, God Jesus Christ, shows us the way to God the Father. God the Holy Spirit comforts us in our pain and tribulation, but strengthens us and shows us the way. But the Holy Spirit, let me say, brothers and sisters, will go where the Holy Spirit wishes. The Holy Spirit is not limited to the church, to us as Orthodox Christians. The Holy Spirit is everywhere present and fills all things. We say that every time we pray. And what are we saying by that? We are saying that non-Christians are also filled with the Holy Spirit. They may not know it yet, but they have the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit touches upon anyone, wherever the Holy Spirit wishes. Not because we've done good things, or because we've gone and preached the Word of God adequately, or that we've gone and blessed people, or laid hands upon people, or breathed upon people. That's not the point. The point is the Holy Spirit has proceeded before us is already there long before anyone who's not Christian begins to think about Jesus Christ. 
So when we think about people who are not Christian, when we think about people who are not members of the Orthodox Christian Church, we must be careful in our judgmentalism that they too have been touched and are filled by the Holy Spirit. If they don't know that, that's our fault, not theirs. Whether they're Methodists, Baptists, Muslims, Jews, whether they are Sikhs, whether they are whatever religion or belief or not belief that they have, they are still filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reaches out to save them. But the Holy Spirit is bodiless. The Holy Spirit needs a body. And not the body of Jesus Christ, because he has ascended, praise be to God. But you, you are the body of Christ. You are the physical representation, the physical manifestation of Jesus Christ. You are his hands and his feet, his eyes and his ears. As you reach out and as you bless, as you reach out and show joy, you are bringing salvation, but not on your own. You are bringing salvation because of the Holy Spirit. If it wasn't for the presence of the Holy Spirit, nobody could become a Christian. Because there is no salvation outside the Orthodox Church. I hear many people screaming sometimes. But the salvation is not ours to give, or even necessarily ours to guard. But salvation is the role and purpose of the Holy Spirit who is everywhere present and fills all things. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.